Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Well, welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan and I'm pastor here and we're in a series right now called Thinking Christianly um, where we're following Paul's uh, letter to the Philippians kind of piece by piece and really having this question on our hearts. What does it mean to think like Christians in the modern or the contemporary world that a lot of times we're told what to think but we're not necessarily told how to think and a lot of times we find that we're ill-equipped to meet the questions of the day and so We're continuing on with that today in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. So I'm going to read it um, in a translation that uh, maybe isn't familiar to you. I find it really helpful sometimes to read, uh, to read scripture out of a passage that I'm, or a translation rather, that I'm not particularly familiar with, and then kind of come back uh, to the good old NIV. Because if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us, right? Uh, so I'm going, to read, I'm going to read this passage and then we're going to pray. This is from the New Testament for Everyone translation. So then, my dear family, it comes down to this. Celebrate in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you, and it's safe for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the bad works people. Watch out for the incision party, that is, the mutilators. We are the circumcision, you see. We who worship God by the Spirit and boast in King Jesus and refuse to trust in the flesh. Mind you, I've got good reason to trust in the flesh. If anyone else thinks they have reason to trust in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Raise your hands. Nope, don't do that. (laughs) Race, Israelite. Tribe, Benjamin. Descent, Hebrew, through and through. Torah, observance, a Pharisee. Zealous, I persecuted the church. Official status under the law, blameless. Does that sound as though my account was well in credit? Well, maybe. But whatever I had written on the prophet's side, I calculate it instead as a loss because of the Messiah. Yes, I know that's weird, but there's more. I calculate everything as a loss because knowing King Jesus as my Lord is worth far more than everything else put together. In fact, because of the Messiah, I've suffered the loss of everything. And I now calculate it as trash so that my prophet may be the Messiah And that I may be discovered in him, not having my own covenant status defined by Torah, but the status which comes through the Messiah's faithfulness. The covenant status from God, which is given to faith. This means knowing him, knowing the power of his resurrection, and knowing the partnership of his sufferings. It means sharing the form and pattern of his death, so that somehow I may arrive at the final resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here, that you are with us, and that you are for us. God, we thank you for this journey that you've been drawing us on, that we believe that it's through the transformation of our minds, the renewal of our thinking, that everything else begins to to align itself. We begin to, to feel in new ways, freer ways. We begin to act in bolder ways. Um, but Lord, we need to, to, to have that engagement with you. We don't want to trade one legalism for another legalism. We don't want to just shed one set of rules just to try to live to another set of rules, but we actually want to be transformed because it's not about our behavior, it's about our being. 
And so, God, each of us have come in here with these varying experiences of you and awareness of who you are to us, what you're doing in our lives. But we lay all of that before you right now, King Jesus, to do with as you see fit. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As followers of King Jesus, we think differently about where our confidence lies. This is kind of where we're going to be going this morning, that as followers of King Jesus, as Jesus people, as Christians, we think differently about where we place our confidence. And I'm talking about confidence in the sense of where do you find the source of your identity, your value, uh, your purpose, your contribution to the world, to your community? What, what do you build that upon? Where is your confidence? And what Paul is essentially doing here is giving a very abbreviated version of his autobiography. He's telling his own story. Um, But the beautiful thing is that Paul is taking the the pattern that we found in the Christ hymn. You remember a few weeks ago we did Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11. There's a poem that perhaps Paul wrote or was an an early song of the church that he adds into his letter. And it says that Christ, although he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something that he should take advantage of. But rather made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave. And he became obedient even to death on a cross. And we, we kind of examined that. What does that mean for Jesus to be truly divine, to be in the image of God, that even though he has all of these rights, even though he has everything going for him, he doesn't consider that something that he can use to his advantage to place himself above us or to be demanding or authoritative, but he gives up all of his status in order to descend, to become less than us, in order to rescue us from sin and death and to raise us into new life. And so Paul is doing that same thing that same Christ pattern, that cruciform pattern, and he's applying it to his own story, his autobiography. And a lot of times we call this Paul's great exchange, these kind of two halves of here's everything I had going for me, and here's everything that I have, because I have lost that uh, for the sake of Jesus, of what it means now for my life. So I'm going to read um, those first six verses again, uh, this time in the NIV. So further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultness. And so there's kind of two parts here that I'm going to break down um, in just a moment. But I think this is really what Paul's talking about. He's talking about something we maybe call self-righteousness. Justification and righteousness are kind of the same package. And self-righteousness means when you hold on to something as your confidence, that it defines who you are and it dictates what you do, how you see the world, how you treat other people. Self-righteousness, what is it that you think that you have that protects you and validates you? And so we are self-righteous when we define ourselves by our privilege and our abilities, and we use them to control the world around us. 
And I think if we're honest, this is a lot of times what happens, that we have privilege, we have a certain status in our lives, a position that we've been gifted by birth or whatever it might be, and we hold it in a certain way that we're protecting ourselves from the world, we're keeping our, ourselves separated from the pain of reality, or we have these special abilities or talents or skills, but we use those things in a way to prop up our own egos instead of being the faithful servants that God's calling us to be, and in turn, the way in which we assume ourselves and our own value because of our privilege and our abilities is the way that we turn that around on other people and we begin to judge them according to those same standards. Maybe it's looks, maybe it's intelligence, maybe it's skills, whatever it might be. Maybe it's race, maybe it's ethnicity, what socioeconomic status. However we define ourselves by default is the way in which we judge other people. And so Paul here is using this term flesh, and this is something that Paul uses a lot of times. And when we, when we think of the word flesh in our modern era, usually we think that it has something to do with our sexuality, but it's actually a much larger thing that, yes, does envelop what it means to be a sexual being. And I really like the idea that whenever you see Paul talking about flesh, he's talking about your ego, okay? Your ego, it's fine. It's a necessary part of being a human being. And when you're, when you're little, your ego is kind of forming your perspective of yourself and the world. And it's, as I said, it's a very necessary thing that is part of your psyche. But what happens is when your ego still reigns supreme, you still think it's all about you. It's the Ryan show and all of you are supporting characters and you kind of, I'm bouncing my ego off of you, seeing what comes back and continuing to try to protect my own value. And so when Paul talks about flesh, this is kind of what he's talking about. He's talking about us assuming that our own human strength is the way in which we can define ourselves. But in, he's, what he's saying is when you place your confidence in the flesh, in your ego, you're placing it in things that are ultimately corruptible. That your ego is not a perfect way to view yourself and to view the world around you. It's corruptible. It can be taken advantage of. It can be uh, shifted by the, you know, by the works of the enemy or the world or whatever it might be. Your ego is very prone to outside influences. And ultimately, um, your ego is built upon decay. It's temporary. All these things of the flesh, our status, our abilities, our skills, all of these things will pass in time. Now, what was happening in this particular scenario in Philippi is that a couple years earlier, there are these guys that were kind of coming up, these Jewish Christians along behind Paul, wherever Paul was going and preaching the good news and establishing churches. There were these Jewish Christians, uh, also called Judaizers. And they were coming along and they were saying, okay, yes, Paul gave you a good half a gospel, but there's this other half you're missing. And if you want to be really faithful to Yahweh and you want to be a, a good follower of Jesus, you have to follow the Torah. And here's all the rules and the regulations. And it, and it happened happened in Galatia a couple years prior, and that's in the book of Galatians. That's a lot of what Paul is really confronting. They started to believe these guys, oh, we still have to keep all the Torah and the kosher eating laws and do this, that, and the other. And he's saying, no, I preach to you a whole and complete and full gospel that's established by grace and not just by following the law. So don't allow that to corrupt it. And so what Paul's concerned is maybe these, these kinds of rumors are going to filter into the Philippian church as well. And so he's really challenging that perspective, that new believers are supposed to conform to the Torah. And it's interesting, Paul uses three specific ways of talking about these people. Number one, he t he, they're kind of ironic words that he uses. He calls them dogs. If you know anything about Jewish culture, you may know that they didn't keep dogs as pets pets. They were pests. They were kind of feral running around. I can just imagine Cora, sweet little Corgi, just, just running around the streets of Orlando and you're like, ugh, look at her. Ugh. 
I think, wait, Daniel Kaylee got, they have a corgi named Cora, and she's adorable. And I love, I think corgis are really cute, but I feel like you got like three quarters of a dog. It's like, there's most of a dog there. There's, no, it's a really cute dog. I just feel like there's bits missing from it. It's too short for the rest of it. It's really cute. I am never allowed to touch your dog again. That's fine. Don't ask me about my favorite dogs. The, Christy is always joking about the, the, the breeds that I prefer. But they was calling them dogs. He's saying they're not, you know, they, which would be very ironic to them because they would say, oh, no, dogs, we don't touch them. They're, they're filthy animals. And so he's kind of turning that around on them. The second thing that he says, um, he says that the evil works people, the evildoers. Well, they, by, as being Torah followers, would say, no, we're good works people. We're all about being faithful and, and following the rules and doing it the right way. And he's saying, no, they're making it about these evil works. And, and then the final thing, he calls them mutilators. That, you know, the kind of the central act for Judaism was circumcision, being marked as part of the family of God. And so he kind of turns that around on them and says, no, they're mutilators of the flesh, which would be kind of a reference to the way pagans did it. Pagans also would mutilate the flesh in order to make the markings in the body and whatnot. And what was initially intended circumcision to be a separation of Israel from all of the other pagan religions, they were treating it in the same way that all the pagans did. This mark makes us exclusive. This mark, you know, you guys have your markings in the flesh. We have our marking in the flesh, and it makes us better than you. And so they had taken this symbol that God had given them that was about reliance on him as their king, and they had used that mark to make it about our tribe being the best, being the strongest. And so Paul is kind of playing on that irony. All of these things that God had gifted Israel with, many people were using as these claims of exclusivity and specialness. And unfortunately, what it does is it makes them the same as all of these other tribes. And so what's the, what's the, you know, the principle for us? I think the thing that you think sets you apart from everyone else may be the very thing that makes you just like everyone else. When you play that power differential game, when you try to say, this is my value and this is my privilege, these are my abilities, these are my skills, and you think that's the thing that separates you from everybody else and makes you special, well, you're special just like everyone else, right? You know, I was a high school teacher for several years and I saw this playing out in real time because if there's anything that like ninth graders are, it's not subtle, you know? It's very obvious. And there's, there's two, you know, over, there's kind of two kinds of ninth graders. There's the ones that want to be like everybody else and talk like everybody else and dress like everybody else and the ones that want to be completely different and do everything a different way. But it, the power differential is still the same thing. They're still using, like, well, here's the agreed upon terms of how people are valued and dress and language and status and all these things. And you're just either rebelling against that thing or you're conforming to it, but it's all the same game. And that's what Paul's really calling these people out for. And we see this throughout the story of Israel in the Old Testament that, you know, in, in the story of Samuel, for example, that the Israelites come to Samuel, who was the, the prophet, kind of speaking on behalf of God, say, give us a king, just like everybody else. We want a king. Only our king's going to be better, and he's going to be stronger. And he says, I don't think that's a good idea. And God says, all right, let him play that game. Let him play that kind of power and, and see what happens in it. I think there's a really uh, amazing modern parable that we've been given um, that speaks to this in such a beautiful and tangible way. And it's been ingrained in many of you uh, in the ways that you've grown up. And of course, that's Dr. Seuss's The Sneetches. If you're familiar with this story, 
powerful, powerful story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you from the ESV version because we want this to be as accurate to the original text as possible. If you're familiar with the Sneetches, there's Sneetches that have stars on their bellies and there's Sneetches that don't have stars on their bellies. And the Sneetches on the beaches don't want to play with the Sneetches that don't have stars on their belly because that was the exclusivity. And what happens is there's a guy that comes into town and he says, well, I can fix that. And he builds a machine and all these Sneetches that don't have stars on their belly go through the machine. They pay $3, which is a really decent, you know, price for status and they get the stars and then they're all happy and they go out onto the beach to go and play with the other Sneetches and those Sneetches are incensed. And what happens is the middleman comes in and says, well, for a measly $10, I have a machine that will take the star off your belly. And so they go, they get the stars off their belly and then they present themselves to the Sneetches that do have stars on their belly and they get really frustrated. And there's this really powerful passage right in the middle of the story. And I just want to <laughs> read this to you real quick. Um, where's my marker here? Do, do, do. I had it marked. Ah, here we go. And there's this beautiful kind of, you know, figure eight of Sneetches getting stars and having stars removed. And it says, all the rest of that day on those wild screaming beaches, the fix-it-up chappy kept fixing up Sneetches. Off again, on again, in again, out again. Through the machines they raced round and about again, changing their stars every minute or two. They kept paying money. They kept running through until neither the plane nor the star bellies knew which this one was that one or that one was this one or which one was what one or what one was who. And so, of course, what happens is this guy walks away with all their money. I assume he is uh, Satan in this story. <laughs> that's, the par that's how the parable goes. And all these Sneetches are kind of left in this place and they realize how ridiculous they are that they're judging people by whether or not they have stars and they actually get along and play on the beaches. And is that not how we live in our modern era. The Sneetches is about this illusion of elitism when we consider our privilege or our abilities are the thing that make us special, that make us over and against them over there. Several years ago, um, when I kind of began in the ministry in my church in Nashville, um, I was, uh, was leading a community group that was getting ready to become a church plant, um, and I was getting ready to start at this ministry school that I had been asked uh, to do, and my pastor came to me, very blunt person. Uh, he's amazing in my life, caused me a lot of trauma, but I'm working through it, and he's amazing. And he came to one of our groups one time, and, and he pulled me aside, and he said, you have a real problem uh, with, um, with your own intellect. He said, you, uh, you have a lot of spiritual pride because you know, every, you, know more about, you know more than everyone else in the room and that's how you're judging other people. And of course, I was furious that he was so blunt to say that and then I realized how right he was. That I, that I was acting as if I knew at more about than everybody else in the room. We had about 20 or 30 people in our, in our community group, in our kind of small house church. And it took me a long time to process that. And I did what, you know, maybe many of you would do was I kind of said, oh, in order to be humble, I need to kind of hide away my abilities. And I realized, well, that's not the thing that I'm called to as, as either, because the reality is a lot of times, maybe I was the smartest person in the room. And it wasn't about my ability. I mean, I'm a pretty smart guy. I have a bachelor's in art education from the most affordable private college in the Southeastern United States, okay? <laughs> I'm pretty smart. I took a New Testament class once. Uh, it wasn't about the ability. It was the way in which I was holding it. And ultimately, the way in which I was holding my abilities were not allowing it to come to fru full fruition in the way that God would intend to use it for his kingdom. 
And that's what Paul's talking about here. Your privilege, your ability, your status. Are you using these things to prop up your own little kingdom of self-righteousness that makes you better than everybody else? Or are you going to hold them in a way that God can use them for his kingdom? And that's when he begins the kind of shift over to speak about what we really are in the kingdom, in this new way that God is organizing people. And as Christians, we are marked by our intimacy with God that's made possible by the death and resurrection of King Jesus. This is what he says. It's it's we who are the circumcision. What he's saying is we are the ones that have been marked aside for what God's trying to do, um, who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So we're marked not by our privilege, not by our position of power, not by our abilities, but we are marked because of what Christ Jesus has done for us, kind of playing again off that Philippians 2 Christ poem. And he kind of identifies these three identifiers for the chosen people. If there's kind of these three things that you look at for these Judaizers, there's three things that we have for those of us um, that are the chosen people. He says, number one, we worship in the Spirit which is a way of saying we have this intimacy that's been granted to us by God. We have this communion with him that's been made possible because King Jesus has come, has overturned the powers and the principalities, has gotten rid of sin and death, and has actually made a way for us to be intimate with God. Number two, we boast in King Jesus because of what he has done on our behalf. And number three, we have no confidence in the flesh, the things that are prone to being corrupted, the things that are in decay. I think one, you know, I remember hearing Jean Vanier was asked, the, he's, Jean Vanier is a baby, he passed this year, an amazing man, a philosopher, and worked a lot um, with people with profound disabilities, and he was very old at the time, and they said, why do you think it is that God programmed us to grow up and then to become weaker when we die. And he said, I think God did this out of his good grace so that we would understand how needy we really are, that we need Jesus, that we need a savior. You see, many of us, when we're kind of on that up and up in life, we're growing and we think that we're invincible and we have power and we're doing all these things and we're accomplishing all these things and then things slowly stop working, right? And we become a little bit weaker. And if our value is attached to all of the things that we thought in the first half of life were our rights and our privileges and our abilities, and then those things start to be taken from us by time, it can very easily lead us into a place of bitterness or an identity crisis because what we thought we had confidence in is gradually slipping through our fingers. The challenge is that you and I, we can't fall into these smug attitudes of the old guard, these Judaizers, because we're saved and other people aren't, because we said the prayer and other people haven't, or whatever it might be, our corruptible effort, because then we just trade one legalism for another. And so you may have status and skills, but do you use them to justify yourself? What are these confidence in the flesh that Paul speaks about? He says, my nationality my ethnicity, my education, the amount of knowledge I had. I was part of the religious elite. It was even thought perhaps that that's Paul as Saul was on his way to becoming the next high priest. I was a defender of the faith against heresy when he's talking about persecuting the churches. And it's interesting to remember that as far as the church was concerned, when Paul converted to Christianity, they considered him a terrorist. This was akin to Osama bin Laden coming and knocking on the front door of the White House and saying, I've changed my mind. I actually want to become an American citizen. We say, are you kidding me? 
This is Paul's status as far as it was with the Christians. But he's saying, I was, I was a defender of the faith. I read my Bible and it told me to purge heretics and that's what I was doing with my life. Um, that he was a rule follower. Um, in Enneagram language, we talk about the one or the person is the, the perfectionist or the reformer, the need to perfect the world. This is kind of how we can read Paul's personality. He was in that place and he said, I'm a rule follower. And he actually has the audacity, audacity to say, as far as following the rules, nailed it. Got them all right, which is laughable that, he, that someone would consider themselves having got all the rules. I think this is what's so powerful. None of these things are bad things in and of themselves. It's how he held them. Your nationality, being an American, being from wherever you're from, it is not a bad thing. Your ethnicity, your education, your, your zeal, your passion, none of these things are bad things. But the way in which you hold them can betray the fact that you are self-righteous, that you are self-justifying. You know, we love to hear those stories of someone that's like, oh yeah, I used to do drugs and I was in a bike gang and I was injecting puppies with heroin and all these terrible things. And then I met Jesus and everything's awesome. You know, we hear those stories and we're like, oh, that's the great exchange. But if we're honest, many of us are like, I, I went to good school. I had a pretty good family. Like I did all, I followed the rules. Like we're, our, our testimonies aren't the like, oh, I was a terrible person and now I'm amazing. It's all these things were good and they were fine, but I was holding them up as idols because I was allowing them to define me instead of it being about Christ Jesus and the life that I have in him. So I want us to take 30 seconds and just consider this question. You may have status and skills, but do you use them to justify yourself? Just take 30 seconds, close your eyes, and just consider that. Your status, your skills, are you using them? Are you holding them tightly? Continuing on with Paul's words in Philippians 3 and verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. The language that Paul uses here to talk about that exchange in his life is the language of accounting. Because if you want people to come to Jesus, there's not a lot of better ways to do it than talking about math, right? 
So let me explain a little bit about accounting. This is actually a, a picture of, of our financial. Uh, this is Jeff. Jeff works so hard for us um, in, in balancing our accounts. You know, talk about balancing the books, and he does it by hand, which is amazing. Drawing circles, and I don't, he's got degrees out the wazoo. He's amazing. But there's a very basic understanding in accounting, uh, I assume, because I read this on Wikipedia, that there's credit and there's debit. When you're balancing the books, you're trying to get these two lines to match, okay? And credit is basically the incoming gain, what is being added onto your books. And debit is about the outgoing loss. What are, what are, the, what are the expenses? And so you're trying to balance these books that what you bring in is at least the same as what's going out. And then you start talking about having a profit. And this is how Paul is really talking about his stories. Like everything that I had in, on the credit side, all the stuff that I had going for me, um, uh, you know, going to the right school, being of the right people, being perfect when it comes to the law, being like really zealous and passionate for the cause, whatever all that stuff is, he says, I consider it loss. I consider it all outgoing. It's over. It's done with. I'm not interested in it at all. And he says, not only that, but I consider all of it trash. I consider it garbage because of what it was doing to me, because of what it was doing to my soul, because of how it was keeping me from the one thing that matters above all in this life, which is knowing God. And I think that that's so powerful for us to recognize a, a religious man, someone who was pursuing God to the best of his ability before he knew Jesus, considers all of that a loss. And I think there's a real challenge for us here in this room when we consider how he sees his own story. Because a lot of times we're looking at that credit debit and we come to that, that, that gospel message. We come to Jesus and we're still saying, what are the things that I can add to my credit? What are the things that I can get out of this story? What are the things I can get from Jesus that I just continue to use to prop up my own ego? that I continue to use to justify myself. I think we do a disservice to the good news of King Jesus when we make it about our effort or what we get out of it. And this is a result of the Protestant Reformation very wisely moving away from this kind of works mentality that we have. But what happened over time is that we've made it, the gospel very much me-focused. We open up the Bible and we say, what, do you, what have you got for me today? And everything is about me and, and furthering my life. I think two generations ago, the question was, what do I have to do to be saved? I think the questions nowadays are just, what do I have to do to live a better life? And if we're honest and we come to the, the scriptures, when we engage with Jesus, we don't find a lot of answers for those questions. Or at least there are other people around the world that are answering those questions far better than the gospel does. If it's about how to live a better life or how to get ahead or, or any of that kind of stuff. It falls short when we ask those me-centered questions. Because what's so happening so often when we're self-righteous is that we have reduced and defined the gospel to utility. This is, what, again, what happened to the Protestant Reformation. Let's get rid of beauty and let's get rid of the cosmic perspective and just make it about what's useful. That's why most churches you go into today, it's kind of a taupe color and there's like fold-out chairs. It's just about utility. There's no place for beauty some, to be caught up into something. And, what are the, and it's still a form of control when we're coming to the gospel and saying, how is this useful? How does this apply to my life today? We're still trying to reduce it and make it fit into our questions when it doesn't do that. And I think there's kind of three things. Number one, sometimes we think, we, I believe in the gospel because it makes me feel good. Okay? 
We come to it for good feelings. Number two, it gives me a sense of belonging to the group that I choose. But then again, I begin to judge who gets to be part of that group based on that sense of belonging. And number three, it makes sense of the world. Now, again, those three things in and of themselves are not bad. Feeling good is fine. Belonging to group is fine. Making sense of the world is fine. But when those become the criteria by which we will or will not accept Jesus if he answers all of our questions in the right way, in the right time frame that we have decided, then we are reducing the gospel and we are becoming self-righteous. I have a friend that's been kind of working through this process of figuring all this out. We've been talking about the nature of belief. And a couple months ago, he asked me, why do you believe? Because he was saying, I think some people just believe in God because it makes them feel good. I said, yeah, that's probably true for some people. Or that it it makes sense. It gives them a structure for understanding the world. I said, yeah, sure. I, I think that's a thing that happens. He said, why do you believe in this stuff? Why do you believe in Christianity? Why do you believe in Jesus? And I had to think about it and really find the right language for it. And this is what I came up with. I don't believe in Christianity because I choose it. I believe in Christianity because I have been given over to it. Let me read that for you again. I don't believe in Christianity because I choose it, because it meets all of my needs, because it makes me feel good, or even because it makes sense. Because guess what? Spoiler alert, the gospel doesn't always make you feel good. Can we testify? The gospel doesn't always give you a confident sense of belonging. And the gospel doesn't always make sense of the world. And those things are part and parcel of it. But when that becomes the criteria by which we choose in or choose out, we're missing the mark. I believe in Christianity because I have been given over to it. There's, a, there's language of surrender in there, submission, giving over to something bigger than myself. This is why I think people can become ex-evangelicals, but you can only ever happen to be a lapsed Catholic or a non-practicing Jew. Even in the language there, there's this idea of like, I've been given over to something and it's not about my choosing or not choosing of this thing. Because what Paul's talking about here is being found in Christ. And there's this exchange. Yes, Jesus is within us, but we are also within him. We have been given over to him. We've given over ourselves to him, to something bigger than ourselves, that we no longer have those small criteria for when we judge what is truth and what is not. And I think this is the antidote to postmodernism today. And what does postmodernism tell us? You get to craft your own reality. You get to decide what works for you. Here's all the options, all the different philosophies and religions. and You can pick and choose and you get to decide what you think reality is and what's most useful to you. It's ego run amok. It puts your ego at the center of the story. If you don't want something to be part of, of your reality, well, that's great. You can just cancel it. It doesn't have to be there. You don't have to contend with things. You can only choose to craft your own reality. It's a kind of result. Maybe it's a result. Maybe it's an indication of like how we do social media. You don't like something? Just X out of that tab. Just unfollow that person. It's great. You get to craft your own reality. This is the postmodern conundrum. And I think this perspective of the gospel of Jesus is what is so needed because it's the antidote to that. I have given myself over to something. I am not the gatekeeper of truth. I don't get to set up these little barriers and boundaries for what works for me. This is why we cannot say Jesus is Lord, but that's just my personal opinion. That's a nonsensical phrase. Because what you're doing is you're just believing, oh yes, well, I get to craft my own reality. Jesus is Lord for me. 
but you get to decide your truth. You get, you know, whatever works for you, right? And now what we say so often, well, whatever works for you. Same paths up the same, different paths up the same mountain or whatever it might be. And this is the reality of the end of what Paul's saying here in Philippians. We aren't promised good feelings or tidy answers. We're promised a loving presence and a trajectory for our lives. To give ourselves over to Jesus. To allow ourselves to be washed over by the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't give us good feelings, although they will come. It doesn't give you tidy, clean answers for everything in life, although there are some to be found. What is promised you is a consistent, loving presence. That whatever you counter in life, God is there for you. Jesus said, I am with you until the end, and I am never forsake you. He said, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit who's constantly advocating for you. And not only does Jesus give us this withness, but he also gives us a trajectory for our lives. He says, this is where we're going. Will you join me? Come with me. There's a trajectory. The universe is headed somewhere. I want to take you there. I want to take you deeper into the reality of who I have crafted you to be. And I want you to come alongside of me in that same process of rescuing and redeeming the entire universe. And is this not echoed in the way that we speak about being in love? So you can love somebody and still completely be in control, right? You can love somebody and you can be in control. You cannot be in love with someone and still retain control. Think about that for a second. You cannot be in love with someone and still retain control because to be in love is to have given yourself over to someone else. And I think part of being in love is even to let go of the benefits as an end unto themselves because your lover makes you feel good, because they make you feel safe. When we reduce love to just being about what we get out of it, we miss the mark because it's something bigger, even though those things might be part of love. And ultimately, the real challenge, the eye-opener that Paul is saying is to give yourself over to love is to accept that there will be suffering, but through that suffering comes transformation and resurrection. And so we're going to take a couple minutes, and I want you to turn to the people that are next to you in groups of two or three. And we're going to just spend some time praying over one another. And we're going to ask this question, what confidence in the flesh do I use to define myself and to judge other people? Where is my confidence in the flesh? In my privilege, in my abilities, in my skills, in my status, whatever it might be. Things that might be good things, but the way in which I'm holding them, I'm trying to define myself, and in turn, I'm judging others. So I'm gonna pray, and I want you to turn in groups of two or three, and we'll spend a couple minutes praying over this. Thank you, Jesus. God, thank you that you are a God that is bigger than our needs, that is bigger than our strata and structures that we use to define ourselves and to judge other people and try to fix the world. You're bigger than all of this. And what you're inviting us to, Lord, is to surrender, to let go 
to stop playing those games and to allow ourselves to be enfolded in your unconditional love, your eternal love that is not prone to decay, that's not transient, that will not slip through our fingers. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to each one of us this morning, is there something that we're holding on to so tightly because we think it defines us, that we have confidence in something that's corruptible and prone to decay? And Lord, teach us how to hand that over to you to say, my confidence is in you. Not by my own merit, but because of what King Jesus has accomplished for all of us. So let's turn and let's spend a couple minutes praying over one another. I want to know him, knowing the power of his resurrection and knowing the partnership of his sufferings. It means sharing the form and pattern of his death so that somehow I may arrive at the final resurrection from the dead. When we live a cross-shaped life, when we follow that pattern, when our autobiography becomes like Paul's, which is really patterned after Jesus, when we live a cross-shaped life and we hold loosely all our privilege and abilities in order to have confidence in the one thing that matters above all, knowing King Jesus. Is the cost worth it? Is it worth it to be in love? Maybe you don't think it's worth it. Maybe you'd rather be the king of your own hill, the queen of your own pile. Is the cost worth it? I think that's a challenge to all of us as we come to the table today. That when we come to the, the table of our Lord, the place that's been set for us to worship in the spirit, to have this intimate moment with the God that's revealed in Jesus, it's a re constant reorientation back to where does our confidence truly lie? Is it in all the things out there, all of our accomplishments and our skills and our status? Or is it about what's happening right here? And the more that we come to the table, the more that we're patterned in the image of Jesus, in that cruciform pattern, that it's the eternal, unconditional love of God, the eternal giving of God that rescues and redeems us. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to come to the table. And here, we start in the front, and we come kind of moving the lines back from there, and two lines kind of going around the sides. And I want you to consider that almost symbolically when you're coming to the table. What is it that you're laying down of your, of your privilege, of your abilities to take up confidence in Christ? Because knowing Him is the one thing to be desired. Father God, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for this mystery. The mystery of the table of the Eucharist that something happens when we come before you, when we submit, when we give ourselves over to you and we say, I don't need this to feel good. I don't need this to make sense. I don't need this to, to, to be one more kind of legalistic boundary around my life as another set of rules. I don't need any of that. I'm giving myself over to you because I trust you, because I love you and I know that you love me. King Jesus, do whatever you desire to do as we come to your table.
as we take this bread and this cup, as we take you into us, and so recognize mysteriously that we are now found in you. And bless us as we worship you this beautiful morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's come to the table. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.